Hello, everyone, and welcome to BibleQuest.tv uh, or BibleQuest.org. We still have that URL as well, but we want to welcome everyone today <laughs> to the Tuesday edition of BibleQuest. Uh, if you're coming in on the uh, BibleQuest app, uh, which is at BibleQuest.tv, um, make sure you put up your little Q&A box and be ready to chime in with some comments or questions as we go through today's program. Um, and if you're coming in on the Facebook page, uh, just put the comments in there. We'll be monitoring that as well. Keep in mind, too, that the Facebook page uh, is usually about 13 or 15 seconds uh, delayed, just so that you'll be aware of that. And so uh, with us today, uh, Jeff, good to see you today. Oh, let me go back to make sure I get to the right position here. Good. Jeff, good to see you. How are you doing? Hey, good afternoon. Good. Good. And Jonathan? Jonathan Sadler is with us today as well. Hi, Jonathan. How are you? Good. How are you all? Good. Very good. Uh, Scott will be joining us. He's running a little late, but he did promise he'll be here. So he'll just jump in here in a couple minutes or, not, or so. But uh, we, we started uh, looking at uh, Colossians, the letter Paul wrote to the Christians in Colossae. And today we're going to look at some of the things in the, the second chapter of Colossians. If you have your Bibles with you, all of you in the audience. Uh, it's going to be very interesting things that we're going to be talking about there. Uh, and so, Jeff, why don't you give us some of the background on what's going on here in, in this uh, uh, church, in this location? What's going on? Well, um, first of all, just kind of looking at the structure of the book of Colossians. Um, Colossians and Ephesians are very similar. And in, in Ephesians, you have three chapters where Paul talks about uh, what God has done for the Gentiles and then chapter four begins with therefore, or at least logically it begins with therefore. He says, I, I, Paul, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthily of your calling. And so the last three chapters are how they ought to live, how they ought to walk. But right at the beginning of those last three chapters, in chapter three, there's some discussion about the gifts the Lord has provided, the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, who are going to equip them. And the goal of that is to enable them to walk in truth and not be carried about with every wind of doctrine, er errors. If you look at Colossians, notice verse 6 of chapter 2. Um, verse 6, it says, As therefore you received Christ Jesus Lord, so walk in him. And you compare that with uh, Colossians, or Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1. Uh, therefore, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthily of the calling wherewith you've called. So I would say that when we get to Colossians 2.6, we are turning our attention, Paul's turning his reader's attention to the way that they need to live. In the first part of Colossians, he's He's talked about what God has done in Jesus Christ, the head of the church, and so on. And now he's going to talk about how Christians ought to walk, right? Does that make sense so far? Yeah, it does. That's That's awesome. is, uh, but Paul's writing to people who are already Christians. He's not mm -hmm. writing to the world. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's also similar. It follows a similar pattern as well in Ephesians later on in chapter 4. Um, in verse, uh, starting in verse 17, he's talking about how they needed to change and not walk as the Gentiles did in their futility of their, of their minds. And in verse 19 or in verse 20, he says, that's not the way that you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught him as the truth in Jesus. And he goes on to remind them of the truth that they had learned similar to Colossians, where he mentioned in chapter one, we talked about, uh, Epaphras who, um, taught them the truth in Jesus. And, yeah. and in this chapter, he's going to kind of give them warnings as to 
there are going to be different doctrines and different teachings and different, you know, philosophies and things that are going to try to pull you away from Jesus. And like he emphasized in chapter one, Jesus is preeminent. Jesus is the source of, of life and wisdom and, and, and knowledge of God. And that's where you need to stick where you learned in the first place anyway. Well, wait a minute. Uh, are you are both of you saying that uh, that implies a change? In fact, Jonathan, you used that word. They got to change. He's writing to Christians. People have already been saved. They they died with Christ. Didn't they repent? Isn't that a change that they did in the beginning? So what, what's this going on? He's still telling them to change. That's an interesting observation because you know we're supposed to be buried with Christ and die to sin, and yet in Colossians he he's going to say in Colossians chapter uh, three, put to death. Therefore, your members which are upon the earth. But if you think about it, even in Romans, after in Romans 6, saying you were buried with Christ when you were baptized into his death, uh, he's, he's going to urge them that, uh, that they need to, to now um, live that way. He's writing to people who are already Christians, already, who, who've already done that, and saying they can't continue in sin. And I, I, I don't mean to go further, because we didn't even talk that we were going to go in any direction at all, but... Yeah, it, they, they, they had the Holy Spirit. Isn't the Holy Spirit in them guiding them and directing them so they don't do these bad things anymore? Because I, I, I hear people today say that, that the Holy Spirit laid out on my heart or, or I know this because the Holy Spirit is telling me this. But this I get different. I get a different feeling or an understanding what's going on here. Well, it's All similar right. to what Jesus says in, in uh, Luke 9, verse 23. Um, where he says, if anyone would come after me, he must take up his cross daily and follow me, deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. And that idea of taking up your cross daily is kind of the continual putting to death the the fleshly uh, things that are in you, the sins, all of that that clings really tightly to you. So it's a daily process. They were changed. They repented. They were buried with Christ in his death and baptism. But that doesn't mean that they need to stop <laughs> putting to death the things that are fleshly in them. And being led by the Spirit is not a thing where the Spirit takes me over so I can't choose to do something wrong. Uh, you know, in, in Ephesians 5, he'll say, be filled with the Spirit. In Galatians chapter 5, he urges his readers to walk not after the flesh, but to, um, to how does he say it? Let me turn over there to Galatians 5. Verse 16, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So it's a command. It's a choice you have to make, and it's an ongoing choice. So that's how we, we, we choose to walk by the Spirit. But if I don't pick up the Bible and open up, I'm not going to know what the Spirit's telling me, right? That's exactly right. Exactly right. Mm -hmm. Well, do you guys want to get started in reading in this? Because we got a little bit ahead of the beginning of chapter 2, but it all kind of relates together. I can okay. just read um, in chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Paul says, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, may knit together in love to reach all the rich, the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom all wisdom in whom are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So you have that language in Colossians chapter 2 when you, I think yours used the word that no one may delude you in verse 4. 
Your right. mind says the same thing. This I say that no one may delude you with persuasiveness of speech. In Ephesians chapter um, 4, you have kind of similar language, verse 14, that we may be no longer children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and craftiness after the wiles of error. But here in Colossians, Paul goes into the kinds of errors that he has in mind, or at least the kinds of errors that those folks in Colossae were dealing with, uh, he goes into it in some more detail. And so that's where we'd pick up in verse eight then. Before you, you do before you do that, let me just remind the audience uh, that uh, use the Q&A box or the chat window in the Zoom app and uh, type in your, your uh, comments, questions, and thoughts as we're going through. And as well, those of you that just coming in on the Facebook page, use the Facebook comment box and because we like to have a dialogue and have you come back and forth also with us. Go ahead, Jeff. Sorry. So verse six and seven is he urges them to, to walk in Christ. Then verse eight, take heed lest there shall be anyone that makes spoil of you through his philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments or elements of the world and not after Christ. So there's something that's not after Christ that he's concerned about. It can be put in the category of philosophy, love of wisdom. It can be put in the category of deceit. It is human tradition. It's not from God. And it's interesting he calls it elements of the world. Because as you go through Colossians, he's going to talk about several characteristics of this error that remind us of Gnosticism. He's going to talk about um, these ascetic practices, handle not, nor taste, nor touch. He'll mention those in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 21, ordinances that men have come up with, traditions of men. Those kinds of rules, ascetic, what do we mean by ascetic when we say ascetic practices? That's the uh, kind of self-discipline, uh, similar to like a monk's lifestyle, like in order to not do evil, I'm going to eat bread, drink water, and look at a wall. Yeah, and that's <laughs> unnecessary. I drink water and look at a wall. <laughs> yeah, and I always think of it in Monty Python and the Holy Grail, the thing with the monks going along. You know, I don't know what they're saying, something in Latin, <laughs> and they whack themselves with. Their, <laughs> remember that? Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. So that that kind of idea that to be holy you can't enjoy anything, and so Paul captures that in these words in verse 22, uh, Colossians chapter 2 and verse 22, or 21, handle not, nor taste, nor touch. And he calls them, them ordinances to which the Colossians should not subject themselves. Well, the Gnostics tended to teach that people who didn't have the special knowledge that they had would need to subject themselves to these kinds of ascetic practices. You'll see it in 1 Timothy, the fourth chapter, when Paul talks about those who forbid um, marriage and command to abstain from meats. You can't eat meat. You can't get married and have sexual relations, those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And this will maybe be helpful in, in the section upcoming, how, how he ends this section at the end of chapter two. I really like this verse in chapter two, verse 23. He says these, these things that he's talking about, all of these different philosophies and traditions and things, these have the appearance of wisdom of promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body but they offer no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Right. And so he just kind of comes right out. It's like, they, they look good. They sound good. That, that sounds right. You know, how could you sin if you 
eat bread, drink water, and look at a wall. <laughs> I don't think I can't think of any way right now. But you think about that, how effective have things like that been in times past? Not very uh, effective in stopping in stopping your flesh. And so in this section, he he mentions that how these don't work, and he also mentions um, the way that does work, what what Christ and what God accomplished through us, and what we need to do, which we'll go into detail in chapter three. Now, the reason I jumped ahead to talk about that is because these Gnostics who promoted these ascetic practices amongst the people who didn't have their special knowledge, these Gnostics thought that they had something that was otherworldly. They thought they had a special knowledge that was beyond this world. And they taught that the things of this world were all created by a craftsman, a demiurge, if you want to use that word, they did, um, who was the evil God of the Old Testament. That's what they taught. So they said, this world is all evil, but we have something that is beyond that. We have this insight into the heavenly realms. Well, Paul in verse eight says, take heed lest there should be anyone that makes spoil of you through his philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men and after the elements of the world. So he says right there, he's, he's saying this error that, that you are dealing with in Colossae, where people think they have something that's beyond this world, what they have is really of this world. It's the elements mm-hmm. of the world. Mm-hmm. I'm impressed that this is happening so early in the movement. Paul is there. He's alive. The apostles are alive. Middle of the first century. Christ has been taught. You're now freed from sin and and what consequences that has and and, and death and yet here are christians who have the propensity to go back into these philosophies so quickly and it's interesting it does become much more widespread you know in timothy paul talks about the spirit saith expressly that in later times uh, men shall give heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from me and certainly historically we see more of this in later times, especially in the second century. But if you think about it, remember Ephesians and Colossians are very similar letters. And I argue that Ephesians is written not just to the church in Ephesus, but to Gentile Christians throughout a region, including Colossae. But then Paul writes this second letter, Colossians, in which he says many of the same things he says to everybody in Ephesians, but now he goes into detail about this Gnostic error. And so my argument is that at this point, it, it wasn't widespread. You're right, Drew. It's interesting it was so early, but at this early date, it doesn't seem this had, had become widespread. You see nascent forms of it and indications of it in First Corinthians and other places in the New Testament, but it seems like it had kind of taken hold in Colossae here. And so it's like he's and, trying to nip it in the bud here early. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that kind of goes, you mentioned really quickly, Jeff, but if you want to expound on that, maybe uh, the question came in from Randy um, asking, where where do we find Gnostics in the scriptures? And so here's a little bit hint of that, but uh, I don't believe that they're actually mentioned outright like this is Gnostic. Uh, well, I don't even know if it... pretty close. If you look at First Timothy, I've mentioned First and Second Timothy a couple of times because Paul is dealing with the Gnostic error there. And he characterized it as myths and fables, and it's focused on endless genealogies. The genealogies were all the echelons of angelic beings that the Gnostics believed in, and the Gnostics like to talk about how they were all interrelated. And then you get to 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 20, and Paul says, O Timothy, guard that which is committed unto you, turning away from the profane babblings and oppositions of the 
knowledge, which is falsely so-called. The word knowledge there is the Greek word gnosis, and that's related to the word Gnostic. A Gnostic, or a Gnostic, G-N-O-S-T-I-C, was somebody who claimed to have this special gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S, the special knowledge. And Paul right here refers to it, but he also says it's falsely called knowledge. So he tells us two things. There was something that was called knowledge, and he tells us it, it wasn't really knowledge. Very yeah, thanks thanks for that question, Randy. Yeah, I appreciate that. There's another there's another thing though going on in Colossians two. As as Paul introduced this is introduces this idea in verse eight, and we'll need to walk through verses eight through the rest of the chapter really. But as he I think it's good to kind of get a handle on the whole thing here. As he introduces this idea of philosophy and vain to see the traditions of men that are not after Christ and they're really of this world, not only do we see indications of Gnostic error, but we also see indications of Judaistic error, the Judaizers who tried to impose the law. And you see a hint of it when he talks about circumcision in verse 11. Uh, You'll see it again in verse uh, 16 when he says, let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a feast day or a new moon or a Sabbath day, which are a shadow of the things to come, but the the body is Christ. He's referring to Old Testament uh, observances. And apparently there are people in Colossae who would try to impose those things. This is not the only place in the New Testament where we see Judaizing influence and Gnostic error come together. We also see it in Titus. And it seems here in Colossians chapter 2, you have this combination of influences, Judaistic error, Judaizing tendencies combined with Gnostic elements. This letter is written in the first century to these Christians, but it has such application for us because at first glance, we might say, well, I don't know of people that are teaching the Judaizing error. I do. Okay, you jumped in too quick. I definitely see the Gnostic teaching in our in our world to 2020 today. You know, people that go into the mystic things and the philosophical, uh, human philosophical uh, things to look for solutions to man's problems. But the Judaizing side of it, are there people doing that today? Well, you already answered it, Jeff. You said you do. What is that? Uh, I, we, you probably have other examples, but one that comes immediately to mind are, are the Messianic Jews or the people who call themselves Messianic Jews. A lot of times you'll run into people, and often they're not Jews at all in a fleshly sense, but they have taken hold of uh, observances of Old Testament uh, feasts, and uh, they will even make a big deal of pronouncing everything in, in Hebrew fashion, in Old Testament fashion. And that's kind of a Judaizing influence today. But they do leave out sacrificing a lamb someplace. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> they don't bring all. They don't bring. Well, that's the food. that's the messianic part. <laughs> right, 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 right. They don't they don't offer their animals for blood sacrifices when they go. They stop at that door. Uh, what I was thinking, you're right. I did have a thought. Um, Sabbatarian. Uh, a Sabbatarian would tell us that we're not um, supposed to be worshiping God on first day of the week, Sunday. They worship on the Sabbath, which is mentioned here. I'll let you go into that in a minute. But it's interesting because I just had that conversation uh, in, in, in my in fact, my sermon on Sunday. 
here here in Honsdale, I talked about that. Why do we worship on Sunday? But Sabbatarians, they say, no, you guys got it wrong. Um, and so what what is, does he bring in that side? I think you even read it, right? He talks about Sabbath here. We didn't actually read it yet. Um, oh, I did. Okay. But, well, I guess I did. I did. You're right. In verse 16, let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a feast there or a new moon or a Sabbath day which are a shadow of the things to come, but the body is Christ. In the Old Testament, you had this concept of a Sabbath rest. The Israelites had a, not only a weekly Sabbath, but the Sabbath rest of the land of Canaan at the, at the conclusion of their years of wandering. And those ideas, both the weekly Sabbath and various other Sabbaths and their Sabbath rest in getting to the promised land foreshadowed the ultimate rest that's in Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying here, you know, you don't have to go back and, and keep the shadows. We've got the real thing in Christ. Mm-hmm. And there's two approaches you can take to, to teach what's right here. One would be to first look at, well, why, why, why did the Lord give uh, the Jews or anyone the, uh, uh, the, uh, to observe the Sabbath as, as a day of rest or day of worship? And my argument is that it was only given to the Hebrews. It wasn't given to the world. And in fact, prior to it being given to the Hebrews, it was never given to anybody. It was never mentioned that man should uh, take the, the seventh day and call it holy. Even though he's, he called the seventh day and rested in the week of creation, he's not telling any human being to rest yet. Until we get to Moses and in Deuteronomy, um, Exodus, where, the, where, where it's talked about uh, to keep the Sabbath holy. This is to the Hebrew. And I know it's the Hebrew, and I like this. Uh, in Deuteronomy 5, I know it's to them that they're the ones that have to keep that because it says in Deuteronomy 5.15, you, speaking to the Jews, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Power, a lot of power. Obviously, we know what, what he did there. Therefore, he says, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath. It's a remembrance to keep, to remind you that he's freed you from slavery of Egypt. That's why they worshiped him and rested on the seventh day. So what you're saying, Drew, is all of us who were slaves in Egypt and came out um, into the wilderness on the way to the promised land, we're supposed to keep the Sabbath? Exactly. <laughs> but wait, 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 we're not slaves of Egypt. We are, we were and can be slaves of sin. And if you look at the, re- now we're not going to go into the study of, of the first day of the week worship, but if you look at it, everything has a, has a comparison there. We're to remember who on the first day of the week? Our Lord who died and was raised on the first day of the week. And what did he accomplish in that? Well, in his death, he, 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 he defeats sin. As Paul says here in Colossians chapter two and verse uh, 14 and 15, having blotted out the bond written in ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us. He has taken it out of the way, nailing it to the cross, having despoiled the principalities and the powers. He made a show of them openly triumphing over them in it. So his death is his triumph and he, and he is raised from the dead to conquer death. And so that's what he accomplishes. And he freed us from sin, mm-hmm. slavery of sin. So there's the connection with the uh, yeah. a similarity of a pattern. All but right, Drew, so I don't want to belabor that point, but you were going, were you going? But Drew, but Drew, Sabbatarians, that is people who today say that the seventh day, the Sabbath day is the holy day, 
Yeah. They, and they mean Saturday. They mean Saturday. When we point out that Colossians 2, 16 and 17 says that the Sabbath, along with these other things, are just part of the shadow that the body is Christ. They will respond. Some of them will respond and they'll say, well, this is not talking about the seventh day Sabbath. That's not what is in view here when Paul says you don't judge anybody on the basis of this. What's they he talking say, about? They say that Paul is talking about other Sabbaths because various things in the Old Testament were called Sabbaths. And uh, you could point to a seventh year of when the land was to lie fallow. You could even talk, I suppose, about going into the land of Canaan as the Sabbath rest in the Old Testament does. They say that this word Sabbath here is talking about those Sabbaths, and they say they know that because the word is plural in Greek, which it is. And so they say it's not talking about the seventh-day Sabbath. Uh, but, okay, first, my first argument would be, if it's talking about any Sabbath, that would include a Saturday Sabbath. But well, you're saying they don't buy that. that they it's don't only, buy that because they're going to say the seventh-day Sabbath is, is part of God's eternal law because it's part of the Ten Commandments and you see in Genesis 1. Uh, you start to say something, Jonathan. Well, I was going to say, so Jonathan, but you had a point on this that I thought I heard you say, I don't know if it was earlier today when we were meeting. Yeah, so when, when you look at what he lists here, um, it's interesting. Um, I'll just ask, so we'll take the approach that, Sabbath that we're talking about the last day of the week Sabbath so how often does the Sabbath happen once a week how often going in reverse in verse 16 how often do new moons happen oh good point. once a month how often do festivals happen yearly once a year so you've got once a week once a month once a year which is a pattern that I think Jeff mentioned before um, shows up in scripture elsewhere in this, this time structure of how things happen, happen. And so just based on the structure of how he's writing these things in a, in a very short list, it makes sense that he would be talking about a weekly Sabbath, the, the weekly Sabbath, not a special time of Sabbath, but the end of the week Sabbath. And so uh, with that context there, it seems like he's talking about, you know, keeping the last day of the week as a day of rest. Don't let people pass judgment on you in that regard. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's true. We have this kind of thing where the scripture will mention the, the daily, the weekly, the monthly, the annual, or yearly in order. And there are three passages in the Old Testament I'll turn to real quickly. One is First Chronicles chapter 3 and verses 30 and 31. Uh, they are to stand every morning to thank and to praise the Lord and likewise at evening. So morning and evening, that's your daily. Verse 31 and to offer all burnt offerings to the Lord on the Sabbaths, the new moons, there's your monthly, and the fixed festivals, and there's your yearly. So you have those. And then again in Second Chronicles, uh, chapter 30, I'm going to say chapter 32. Second Chronicles chapter 32. No, it is not Second Chronicles chapter 32. It is, yes, 31. Second Chronicles 31. Verse 3, he also appointed the king's portion of his goods for the burnt offerings, namely for the morning and evening, that would be daily, daily, and the burnt offerings for the Sabbaths, that would be weekly, and for the new moons, monthly, and for the fixed festivals, yearly. yearly. And again, you see it in, in Nehemiah, the 10th chapter in verse 33, for the showbread, for the continual grain offering, for the continual burnt offering, I think that's your daily, 
the Sabbaths monthly for the new moon, I'm sorry, Sabbaths weekly, new moon monthly, and the appointed times, the annual. So then when you come to Colossians and you see Paul talking about some trying to impose Old Testament uh, rituals, and you see him referring to meat or drink, and then he says, in respect of a feast day or a new moon or a Sabbath day, and as Jonathan has pointed out, it, it, that sure looks like weekly, monthly, annual. And then you remember that in the Old Testament, they would go through and, and, and lay them out that way in reverse order. They would start usually with the daily and work up to the annual. Here it starts with the um, annual, works down to the daily. But then you recognize here Sabbath has to be the weekly Sabbath. And so it's, and, and so then they said, well, why is it plural if it's weekly? Well, you could just say, well, there was one every week. So there's many of them, but it's also true that it's, it's pretty customary in Greek in, in the new Testament and in the old Testament, in the Greek translation of the old Testament to use the plural for holy days, including Sabbath days, even when you're referring to one. So what we, what we end up with is there are people who are, trying to impose Judaistic things like keeping the Sabbath today. And Paul is writing Colossians in part to confront that tendency to impose Judaistic influences and and Judaizing tendencies. And he says, don't let anybody judge in respect to these things, because these things were just a shadow in the reality is Christ. Now, does he uh, go into any detail on the Gentile false teaching, or do we already see that? Well, that, it's interesting. The Gnostic error is, is, uh, is an error that seems to take some Greek philosophy and some Eastern religion and, then, and some Judaistic tendencies also and then drape it in Christian terminology. I don't know how many people are familiar with the term syncretism, but syncretism is when you just take a little of this religion, a little of that, and a little of another thing, and you just a mashup of all of it. And that's kind of what Gnosticism was. It was kind of a mashup of Eastern religions, Greek philosophy, some Judaistic ideas, and then put it all under the rubric of Christian terminology and profess to be Christians. So John, in First John, is dealing with Gnosticism, and he says, they went out from us, for they were not of us. A lot of these Gnostics purported to be Christians, but they weren't really so, yes, you've got Gentile influences here. He uses that word back up there in verse 3, 2, of the true knowledge of God's mystery. And he explains, then he says Christ himself. So what's the mystery part there? Is that relating to some of these things that we're talking about? You know, I'm not, I'm not so sure that Paul is, is alluding to the, some of this stuff when he used the word mystery here. In Ephesians, Paul uses the mystery, and he's talking, he explains specifically he's talking about. He's talking about the fact that Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, that it is in the preaching of Christ crucified that Jews and Gentiles are brought together in one body and reconciled unto God through the cross. That's the revelation of what had been a mystery um, for many generations. And I think he's probably using the, the, the word here in the same way in Colossians 2. But it is true, though. There are various words that pop up both in Ephesians and Colossians uh, that, that Paul seems, especially in Colossians, to use, and he's using them 
to get at the Gnostic teaching. For example, in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9, after he talks about the philosophy and vain deceit, which is not after Christ, then he says in verse 9, for in him, in Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead or of deity, you could simply say, bodily. So deity dwells in Christ fully. Well, the Gnostics use that term fullness. The Greek word is pleroma. And the Gnostics use that as a term for all of this pantheon of supernatural beings. And they taught that the term Christ just applied to one particular one of them. And there were all these other beings. And and then Paul says here, actually, the fullness that he uses their word, the pleroma, is in Christ. It's all in Christ. And then a little bit later on, um, he's going to say in verse 18, let no man rob you of your prize by voluntary humility. This asceticism where people, how was it, Jonathan? Eat bread, drink water, and look at a wall. Look at a wall. <laughs> let no man rob you of your prize by telling you you have to eat water, drink bread, and look at a wall. And worshiping of the angels, well, the Gnostics were big into the angels, dwelling in things which he has seen, vainly puffed up by his, and then he says, fleshly mind. Well, Paul talks about the things of the flesh in many of his writings, but here that's significant because the Gnostics said the flesh is evil and we're, we're above that because we have this special knowledge in our heads that lifts us above the flesh. And Paul says, you've actually got a fleshly mind. So mm -hmm. he, he really kind of... Yeah. I, I almost see that as a play then, uh, the way you described though, the play of words. And he says that back in verse two, true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself. Then he goes into verse three, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So you guys may think you have the wisdom and that special knowledge, but he's reinforcing it throughout this, this chapter. It's in it's Jesus Christ. And that thing about the, no, the knowledge of God's mystery, well, it's no longer a mystery once it's told. Right. Maybe this is a maybe this is a crude observation, so you can correct me if if it is. But back in chapter one, in verse eighteen, it, when he's talking about Jesus, he says he Jesus is the head of the body of the church, and he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and everything he might be preeminent. That idea comes up again in the next verse after where you read uh, in in verse eighteen. He says that these these false teachers are going on in their sensuous minds and their fleshly minds. They're, they're not thinking spiritually from Jesus. And in verse 19, he says, they're not holding fast to the head from who the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. Well, the head contains the brain, the mind. And so if Jesus is the head, that's where we should get our, our mind from, I suppose. Uh, and, and, yeah. And so like a body is a body that wants to have any sort of longevity needs to stay connected to the head. <laughs> well, right, exactly. And he's just said, these people aren't connected to the head. You know, you mentioned Drew uh, chapter two, verse three, in whom are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge hidden there in Christ. Yeah. He uses the word when he says knowledge there, he uses this word gnosis, uh, which is we were talking about in connection with first Timothy six twenty the term related to the word Gnostic. And so, yeah. That's uh, cool. Well, we, now we, we really, uh, we really need to, I guess, go back and now walk through verses 
eight and following, we've, we've kind of got a, um, an overview of what Paul is doing here. But uh, let's go back and read, and I'm going to start in verse 10. So after he said, uh, be aware of these vain, um, uh, vain deceits, the philosophy and tradition of men that are not after Christ, and then in verse 9, he said, everything, the fullness of God, the fullness of deity is in Christ. And by the way, in verse 9, where some translations say Godhead, people have taken that word and they use Godhead to mean Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They take it to mean Trinity. That's really not what the word means. Uh, you'd do better if you said Godness or if you simply said deity. That's what it's saying here. Deity dwelt in Christ. And then it says in verse 10, and in him you are made full, who is the head of all principality and power, in whom you were also circumcised with a circumcision not made with hands, in the putting off of the body of the flesh in the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, wherein you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead, and you being dead through your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, you, I say, did he make alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. And then he goes ahead and talks about how that which condemned us, uh, the bond written in ordinances against us, was, was taken out of the way. So in short here, we, we started out the program, Drew, you're making the point, isn't he writing to Christians? Yes. And yet he's telling them they need to put to death the things of the flesh. Well, right here, writing to Christians, he says, uh, you were dead because of your sin and God made you alive. And yet he's going to go ahead and urge them to live accordingly in chapter three and verse five, put to death, therefore, your members which are upon the earth. So, so Jeff, that verse 12 that you went through having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up. So the, 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 the um, the symbolism I, I see there is that as Jesus went in the grave, you then were buried also just like him. Right. You're going into the water representing your grave. And just like he came up out of his grave because of him. Now I'll come up out of my grave, literary grave. Yeah. But yeah. I always was told by people when I'd have a discussion or studying this, that, well, that what I did was a work. But right here, it says that that's not my work. Now that I'm looking at it, Whose work is it saying it is? Raised with him through faith in the working of God. God's doing the work. I'm not doing anything. That's, that's right. Well, yeah. I, I did. I did. So I chose to obey Jesus Christ. That I did do mentally, intellectually. Carried yeah. that out. But God's doing the work of my salvation. Not that, me. Christ did the work of suffering on the cross to take the punishment for our sins. Yeah. But, you know, people who say that, what they're saying is baptism is really not that big a deal. It's certainly not the dividing line between being lost and saved, but in scripture it was, it was the, the point at which uh, the old man of sin is put to death and, and we become alive with a new man. It, it was that transition point. And that's the way first Christians, first century Christians understood it. And that's um, what you said, cut, you, I don't know if that related to verse 11 that you said that circumcision, not with hands, but, this is the one made without hands. 
putting off the body of the flesh, right, in the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, wherein you were also raised with him through the working God who raised him from the dead, and you being dead, when did we become dead? When we put off the, 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 the body of the flesh. When, when was that? Well, when, when we were buried with Christ in baptism and then raised, as Paul says, to, uh, in newness of life in Romans 6. Mm -hmm. Yep. So interesting. So then what he does is then he brings in the fact that um, we've had this victory through Christ. And so he says, then don't let anybody judge you in respect to these Old Testament ordinances that were just a foreshadowing of Christ. Christ is the thing that does this for you. So don't let anybody judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a feast day or a new moon or a Sabbath day and so on. The, and, and you see both the Judaistic error and the Gnostic error being alluded to here. We've already talked about that. So in verse 20 then, he says, if you died with Christ, from the, this translation says rudiments, but we could just say elements. If you died with Christ from the elements of the world, if you've put off the flesh, if you've put off the things of the world so that you're in Christ, why in the world, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to ordinances, worldly ordinances, not things that God has said, but stuff man has made up, handle not, nor taste, nor touch. And he says, all which things are to perish with the using. Uh, and he says, why would you subject yourselves to these things after the precepts and doctrines of men? Which ties right back to chapter 2 and verse 8, where he talked about the tradition of men. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And then he closes that section there uh, again with verse 23. Those seem wise, they seem good, they seem, they seem righteous, but they, they have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. How does these are not the way. How does yours read in verse 23, the first part of the verse, Jonathan? Uh, these have indeed the appearance of, of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. Yes, self-made no self religion. This is a different yeah. translation says will worship, but that's the idea. It's self-made religion. It's just worship according to my will, not God's will. And mm -hmm. I make up the rules. And that's yeah. not of any value. Why would, yeah, someone, that's the big... why would someone want to add to a religion, a concept to severely treat yourself, uh, you know, severely severe treatment of the body. What, what there's, it's not saying to say that that sounds uh, um, uh, attractive to people. I, I just, mine says matters of which would be sure the appearance of wisdom. Okay. So it's appearing to be wise, self-made religion, self-abasement and severe treatment of the body. I don't see any attraction well, here, in that. Here's well, that could have been, yeah, go ahead. Here's the irony. In, in, the, in, the, in the early centuries, in the first century, in the second century, a lot of these Gnostic teachers that imposed these rules on people lived themselves very licentiously. Uh, mm -hmm. They thought they could do anything because they had the special knowledge. They just imposed the rules on everybody else. And today, today, oftentimes you will have religious leaders, televangelists, who will impose all kinds of rules and obligations on everybody else and how much money they have to give and what they have to give up, what they can't do while these religious leaders themselves live very luxuriously and licentiously. Yes. And so the, the warning and the, the admonition that Paul's making in the first century may not 
apply specifically in some circumstances. There's still Judaistic teaching, still Gnostic teaching today, but it may not apply specifically, but it's more of a broad admonition that any self-made religion, anything outside of Jesus, anything that's that's being held in this higher esteem than the things that you've learned in Christ outside of God's word, don't don't fall after those. They might have the appearance of of righteousness and of wisdom, but that's that's not the plan that God has laid out for us to follow. Well, Drew, uh, we're close. I don't know if you want to get anything else started going into chapter three. We're about out of time here. No, I think, yeah, th this is a good place to stop. Um, if we would like to invite everyone to submit questions, make your comments, give us things you want to, you would like us to talk about. We'll go into chapter three because it talks about a different person in chapter three, a new person that we're to be. We'll look at that next week, unless someone else has questions on other topics. Go to uh, www.biblequest.tv. There's a form on that page. Fill it out. Send it in. You can, you can be anonymous, too. You don't have to give your name if you don't want. We'd like you to, but you don't have to. And if you're listening to us on the recording, the podcast, and by the way, Jeff, we are really getting a lot of people, and we're so thankful to you that are listening to us on the podcast as well as watching us live on the, on the live stream. But we're, we're, they're, they're down. We have people downloading in the thousands every month. This Great. Is, I'm Great. impressed with that. And so keep it up. Give us your questions. So if you're coming in on a podcast, go to BibleQuest.tv when you're home and you're in front of your computer or on your, your tablet. Give us your feedback. Tell us if, what you're liking, what you want to hear, what you want to talk about, what you want us to talk about. We want to hear from you. Gentlemen, I want to thank you. It was a very good discussion. I really appreciate it. Look forward to seeing you next week. Everyone have a great week and have a good week. Thank you much. Thank you.